The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor. I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Money Advisors, is also in partnership with Chen Lin, who publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? And now is the time, if you're interested in investing uh, in a subscription to Chen's letter, to go to miningstocks.com and sign up for the letter. He will be taking new subscriptions uh, actually through Wednesday of this week. And then you'll have to wait for the next quarter, next calendar quarter, to sign up again. So miningstocks.com to sign up for Chen or my newsletter, J. Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks. I do want to thank our uh, sponsors for making this show economically viable. Our sponsors for today's show are Carlisle Goldfields, Oren Resources, Copper Bank Resources, and Kalinex Mines. I've titled today's show, Why is Investing in Gold Not a Suicidal Investment Strategy? Daniel Oliver and Jean Martineau return as guests today. This has been one of the longest and most severe downturns for gold mining that uh, your host has witnessed since the early 1980s when I began writing my newsletter. As David Jensen has thoroughly documented at jtaylormedia.com, the price of gold is rigged to artificially low levels by the same interest that picked the pockets of the Americans during the financial crisis. Paper gold markets are virtual markets that have nothing to do with the actual price of gold, the bullion, the metal itself. So what hope is there for gold and gold shares in a world in which the existing world order hinges on trashing gold as a means of maintaining the petrodollar? Certainly my first guest, who will be joining me momentarily after our first commercial break, has some good news in terms of investing in gold-producing companies. I'm talking about Dynacor Gold. Jean Martineau has been doing a great job of increasing gold production for that company and earning and increasing its earnings even in this past four-year bear market in gold. 
And as Jean will explain, the company has plans underway to continue increasing gold production as well as its profit margins. Dynacor is an exciting company and one of my personal favorites. It's actually uh, one of my largest personal holdings. So I am really personally anxious to hear what Jean has to say. But I think Dan Oliver also, who will be joining me at about a half past the hour, can also give us reasons why owning gold and buying gold mining companies is anything but suicidal. In fact, I believe Daniel might actually make the case that not owning gold may be suicidal. I should also mention that both technical analysts that I follow closely, namely Michael Oliver and Dr. Robert McHugh, have both turned cautiously bullish on gold. Perhaps Dr. McHugh is a bit more bullish, as he is predicting a 30-plus percent rise in gold over the last nine months of this year. But Michael Oliver certainly has a bullish view of gold as well, though perhaps a bit more cautious as Michael watches day in and day out uh, the momentum and the structure of the gold markets. And this is why I would really like to have Michael on the show uh, as often as possible. Hopefully he'll be with me next week to help us uh, keep in tune with what he's seeing in terms of the structure and the momentum for the gold markets. As we do want to be there when gold turns up, I think as you'll find out from Dan Oliver, gold could turn up with a, with a vengeance once, uh, once it happens. Uh, but uh, we'll, have, we'll have to wait and see what Uh, Dan has to say. Well, in any event, we do have to go to our first commercial break now, but don't go away because when we come back, Jean Martineau, the president and CEO of Dynacor Gold Mines, will be with me. That's one of the most profitable uh, and growing gold producers over the last four years, the bear market of gold. So don't go away. I'll be right back with Jean Martineau. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Where infrastructure meets grade, Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. 
Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really glad to have with me once again Jean Martineau. Jean is the president and CEO of Dynacor Gold Mines. Dynacor is a junior mining company that has managed to generate growing production and earnings despite a declining gold price and despite some regulatory hurdles that it has successfully leaped over. Dynacor trades in Toronto under the symbol DNG. It trades down here in the United States under the symbol DNGDF. Here there's only 36 million shares outstanding and under Gene's leadership, he's really taken good care of shareholders, I believe, being very mindful of dilution. Well, I'm really happy to say that my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, was the first newsletter uh, to discover Dynacor. I first recommended it back in August of 2010 at 32 cents in U.S. money. It has been trading around $1.80 in U.S. funds. And uh, I continue to recommend this stellar performer to my subscribers because I expect Dynacor will continue to display a steady growth of gold production and earnings. Uh, and when we actually get back into the gold bull market, I think it's going to be uh, one major success story. Uh, to help you understand why I like this stock so much, let me say hello to Jean Martineau. Uh, he will tell us uh, what his plans are over the next year or so for Dynacor. Welcome, Jean. It's really good to talk to you again. Hi there. Jay, a pleasure to be on uh, on your uh, program again. Yeah, it's uh, always good to talk to you, and uh, I guess it's, uh, you know, when things go well, it makes for good feelings, for sure, and Dynacor has been a bright spot in an otherwise fairly gloomy market uh, for gold mining shares. Jean, you've been in the business of purchasing ore from small gold miners in Peru, and you've been very successful in generating very high recovery rates, which has uh, made Dynacor a favorite company for these small miners to sell their ore to. Can you uh, take a minute or two to tell our listeners about your unique business model and why that model enables you to enjoy good profit margins even in uh, declining gold prices uh, like we've experienced over the last couple of years. Sure. We, uh, in fact, we operate a mill today of a uh, capacity of 250 tons per day, and we buy ore from small miners all over the country. And in, in Peru, you have a lot of these small miners. Uh, they, they are uh, small groups, and they don't have any mill. So uh, we can uh, we buy ore from them, and as we have a very high recovery rate, we can offer a better price to them from uh, uh, compared to competition, for example. Mm-hmm. So there, we buy the ore based on the on the gold price, and we process it. And uh, we sell the gold, and with the profit, uh, we, we pay for the exploration, for example. And uh, as it, we uh, we get a margin here, at about uh, we've got a gross margin uh, in 2014 of 18.7%, and in 2013, we've got a gross margin of 18.3%. So it means that our gross margin increased marginally last year, even if the gold price went down. So because of our business model, we up uh, the, a lower gold price. I mean, we earn less money, but we still earn money. Mm-hmm. So this is a very good uh, business model for uh, to to generate cash in any gold uh, price environment. You you have uh, been producing gold from your Huanca mill, uh, but on March 18th, uh, you just announced that you have received permits to construct a new mill at Chala. Uh, how soon do you expect to have the Chala mill completed? And, and you know, tell us a little bit about the size of that mill and what are your plans going forward for both of those mills? Well, uh, initially, we wanted to uh, build a new mill in Chala, 300 ton per day, and uh, designed to go to 600 ton per day in the future. And uh, we wanted to transfer all the, the production from Wanka to Chala. So because the Chala mill will be uh, much better uh, situated just uh, beside the highway, it's accessible by a big trailer trucks 
connected to the national grid and uh, and so on. But now we are already at 250 tons per day at the mill. We uh, expect to maybe able to be increased that to 300 tons per day before the end of this year. So next year, when we're going to start a new mill, we're going to be already 300 tons per day. So we're evaluating now the possibility maybe to operate both mill together, depending on how many more ore we're going to be offered, or we're going to be able to buy at that time. For the new mill, the, the budget was $10 million initially. We're just revising this budget right now. The construction time will be uh, about nine months. And uh, with uh, the, the time to, to test it and final permit to, uh, to start it, uh, we expect that in one year, well, in 12 months, we should be uh, uh, running the mill. So we expect to uh, begin the construction before the end of May uh, next month. And uh, about 12 months later, we should be running there. Okay. So, and then you may be also continuing to run the Huanca mill uh, when you well, start uh, this one. It, yeah, we're evaluating the market actually, and we know that when when we're gonna be in the Chala, we're gonna have access to uh, more ore, uh, much more ore. It's uh, difficult to evaluate actually how how many more tons per day we're gonna have. Uh-huh. But uh, we're evaluating the way to uh, way to to be able to because next year we're gonna have two mills. Uh, fully permitted for 300 ton per day each one. So we're going to uh-huh. have 600 ton per day permitted uh-huh. mills. So we don't want to uh, shut down one mill because uh, it's too far away. If we can continue to operate that mill, maybe on a lower uh, uh, lower uh, pace, per, uh, lower tonnage per day, but continue to operate that until we're going to be able to increase the mill capacity at Chala because it's going to start at 300 ton per day. But as I said, it has been designed to operate at 600 ton per day, going into step to uh, 300 to 450 and 6. So depending on the offer next year, uh, we're going to start as soon as possible the expansion there. And uh, it's going to take uh, some time, maybe one year, one year and a half or two years, I don't know. And uh, during that time, there is a possibility to use Wanka for that. So next mm-hmm. year, what I can tell you now, we're going to be running at the minimum of 300 tons per day mm-hmm. and possibly uh, four, 450, we're going to see. Mm-hmm. Oh, time will tell, I guess, depending on, on various factors that come into play. You yeah. uh, mentioned that your preliminary number uh, cost there was about $10 million. Do you expect that to vary much from that number, Gene? Well, we uh, it's a budget we did uh, two years and a half, three years ago. Uh, we probably see a little, bit, a little increase there, but not so much. So I'm mm-hmm. not concerned about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just questioned to revise uh, some equipment that we have to buy, how it's going to be. Uh, manpower in Peru, haven't, uh, the, the, the costs haven't increased very much because uh, mining has been a little bit... Uh, Lower investment in mining in Peru last year has a slowdown. Mm-hmm. So uh, for us, it's a very good moment, in fact, to begin a construction because we have access to more uh, construction company uh, contra- contractors, and uh, it's more available today. So I don't expect a, a huge, uh, a big uh, increase in the budget. Okay, and uh, how do you expect to finance that? Well, actually, the financial position of uh, Dynacords, we have $23 million in uh, working cap. We have uh, close to $14 million in, in cash in, uh, in the bank, so it's going to be uh, financed internally. We don't need to uh, do any financing for that. Well, that's uh, that's music to my ears. With just 36 million shares outstanding, and uh, that's yeah. congratulations on that because you've been able to grow this company organically uh, and generate internal cash flows and keep the uh, dilution down, which is what I love to hear and love and to see as a shareholder. And actually, we're still generating. Uh, 
probably around, uh, I don't know, $700,000 a month, for example. So we have this cash position, actually, and we still continue to generate cash. So we're in a very comfortable situation. Yeah, congratulations on that. Well, you're going to be feeding uh, the new mill at Chala uh, with, uh, I guess, with with the ore that you purchase from small miners, but you also have your own project that you're developing, your own mine, underground high-grade mine, a vein system at Tumi Pampa. How's that coming along, and how soon do you expect you might have some mill feed from Tumi Pampa uh, and uh, to feed into Chala? Well, uh, Tumi Pampa, we have been uh, working on We bought this property in 2000, and uh, we bought it for high-grade gold veins. Uh, that we sell on the surface. We have identified uh, today uh, more than 15 of these veins with uh, very high grade. And uh, actually, we are starting an exploration campaign where we're going to dig uh, about uh, 2,000 meters of underground uh, cross-cut uh, added chimneys. Uh, for the exploration, we're going to do uh, 6,000 meters in underground uh, uh, drilling. We're going to do another 1,500 meters uh, from surface uh, uh, drilling. So we have, we're going to spend this year about uh, $5 million in exploration, plus another 4.5 in, uh, in the first uh, maybe uh, six, uh, six to eight months in 2016. So we have a, a very important exploration uh, program there. And uh, with this, at the end of that, in uh, like 18 months from now, uh, we uh, should have a first 43-101 report with reserves and resources. And uh, there, because of the way we're doing the exploration, because we're doing uh, not just uh, drilling from the surface, but underground uh, the, uh, tunneling, uh, cross-cut development, mm-hmm. we uh, may be ready to start mining in, uh, in uh, two years from now, for example, uh, we're going to have to see how, uh, how the resources are developed on the ground and uh, what the access, but we may have a block uh, maybe ready for, for mining in, uh, in less than two years from now. So if it's possible to do that, uh, a possibility here would be to uh, get uh, an extraction permit, which is much easier to get than uh, a full operation uh, permit, uh, um, construction permit for new mill and so we could start extracting some ore from down, uh, there and uh, track it down to the one camel for example mm-hmm. uh, we're going to have a one camel of 300 ton per day and in two years we may be already at uh, 450 or 600 ton per day in Nunchala and uh, so we could use that mill as a pilot plant to test the ore from Tumipampa, modify the mill and prepare a full uh, design for new mill in Tumipampa but in the meantime we may be able to use that to uh, do some production. So if we just, uh, let's say, identify a block of 300,000 tons are mm-hmm. ready to mine, 300 tons per day, it's, it's still three uh, three years of production at that one. It would be more costly to uh, do that than, uh, process, uh, than uh, mill it at, on the same spot. But if we have an average of half an ounce per ton, which looks like uh, it is today, at this so high grade, we will get more profit out of that and uh, the actual operation in, uh, in Wonka buying ore. Mm-hmm. So why not to do that? So it's, it's a possibility. We're going to see that in the, in the coming 18 months with the exploration. And beside that, we're exploring the disseminated part of Tumipampa where we get... Uh, uh, a lot of new information. So this year we're going to have a lot of information about the explosion there. Mm-hmm. So the idea then is uh, you may use the Wonka as a, a pilot mill for the ore from uh, Tumipampa and then, and then later on build your own mill uh, at Tumipampa as well. 
Yeah, it's a possibility. It's a possibility that we're yeah. looking uh, at actually, because mm -hmm. on the long term, you have to build something on the spot. Uh, that's for sure. But you know, to get your mill, uh, mill uh, uh, permit, construction permit, to get the mill to operate there, it's it's a long process. And sure. today, with the environment laws and this and this and that, sure. but in our case. We're going to have, at that time, if you speak about uh, two years from now, at that time, we're going to have all our uh, all processing operation in Chala uh -huh. at what, 450, 600 tons per day, whatever uh -huh. it is. Uh -huh. So the one Camel will be free, and uh, we're going to be able to use that first as a pilot plan to, uh, to test our ore. And from there, we can do just the modification, uh, necessary modification on the mill, and maybe start a first uh, small production there. But mm -hmm. even with that, we could earn more money than uh, with uh, with the Chala mill. So it's it's, it's, a, it's a very very interesting. Uh, yeah, very good position to be in. Then, as you're of course uh, earning some cash flow from that early production, potentially from uh, from Tumi Pampa, you can then start to make plans and get permits and so forth to build your own exactly. miller. I suppose. Yeah. Ex exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, we're gonna be able to use that that mill as a pilot plan, as I said. So we could do our own uh, pre feasibility study with this. And all these are uh, these things that are very costly, and we could do that uh, ourselves there. So the uh, one Camille will give us flexibility that uh, in other case you don't have. Terrific. Well, you know, your, your Tumi Pampa plant, of course, you've got this, this near-term production potential there, likelihood to come, I believe. Uh, you also have uh, some tremendous blue sky there in terms of bulk tonnage potential from the SCARN uh, formation that you've got there. Uh, what are your plans for that now? I suppose that's something you're putting on the back burner now, and uh, or might you have a major mining company come in and spend some money to do uh, some of that high-cost exploration work there? Well, uh, actually, we did. Uh, we began with the uh, the vein uh, part, where we've got uh, pretty good success up to today, as you know. And uh, last year, we began uh, to do surface exploration on the disseminated part, uh, where we have uh, bridgeheat rocks uh, mineralized on the surface. We have identified an exoskeleton there. We have identified the different uh, geological uh, geological structure there, and uh, it's opening up the, the potential there substantially. It's still on an early stage on that part, but uh, it's very, very interesting. And uh, and uh, it's part of the SCARN, and uh, the SCARN will be a little bit uh, on the north of that too. So with uh, what is going on actually, we're expanding the exploration toward the, uh, the disseminated, and uh, we'll do probably something on the SCARN, maybe beginning of next year. But uh, if things are going uh, very well, we may be able to uh, to finance all that uh, ourselves. Mm -hmm. We'll see. But uh, we'll do that as uh, as long as we can. But uh, I, we may be able to finance everything there. So yeah. uh, we're going to expand. Uh, now we have an exploration uh, program for the veins and the dissemination sure. part. Yeah. And uh, next year we're gonna have uh, surely something to uh, to go on the scarn because it's something that it's huge behind there, and uh, we want to uh, to explore that. You know, uh, Gene, I, w I would imagine though, with your cash resources as you expand here, you're going to be drawing down uh, a good portion, if not most, of that cash flow. Even though it's even as it's building up here, uh, as you build the Chalum uh, Mill, and you're talking about your exploration budget and so on and so forth. So I would imagine that you're not really thinking about any more stock buyback uh, programs. Program right now, right? No, we start the uh, buyback program in October last year because the the, the stock price was a one sixty, one fifty, and we feel that it was quite undervalued. And we began a stock uh, buyback program, which we uh, stopped uh, just before Christmas. 
about, uh, I think, just under 400,000 shares. Mm -hmm. We spent uh, around or close to $600,000 on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, after Christmas, the stock uh, went up again, and uh, so there we feel uh, more comfortable with the with the stock price. Mm -hmm. So we bought, uh, I think, average price we paid uh, for the the, the stock uh, we bought back was uh, one dollar fifty seven or one dollar fifty nine Canadian dollars. So uh, if you compare with the stock price today, we we're at two dollar twenty five. So it it was a good move, but uh, effectively with uh, all the investment we want to do now, we don't uh, expect to do uh, any other buyback for the moment. The stock price is good. And as I said, with the beginning, the construction of the China mill and with the expansion campaign that we've got uh, for this year, we're going to have a flow of uh, news uh, through the year. So I don't, I don't see any, any need for the, for the buyback for, sure. for this year. Sure. Well, that makes an awful lot of sense. But, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before we went on mic here uh, about your assets now. Your balance sheet is as clean as a whistle. You don't have any debt. No. And also, uh, you mentioned, I think, that the mill itself almost justifies the, uh, th that is, the valuation of the mill itself almost justifies the current share price. Well, I would say that uh, Tumi Pampa still has, has some part of that. But if you look at the, uh, at the, at the numbers, uh, we're two dollar twenty five, and somebody who entered in a, in, a, in a stock today, for example, uh, with with the profit we're getting out of there, and uh, actually we have a price on earning uh, which is around ten times. Uh, it's not too high; it's good, mm -hmm. but it may be higher than that. So, just based on the profit we we're doing, and with the fact that we're beginning the construction of the new mill, uh, price is uh, is uh, is quite solid there. So, the possibility to go down is is very low. We're going to increase the production now, so you're protected there. And uh, to me, Pampai just over that, so uh, it's a blue sky just uh, oh. over that price. So it's 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 quite a good uh, a good situation there because you're protected against any uh, any lower price. And uh, as uh, I said, we saw in uh, October last year, we feel that the price was really too low for what we have. So we just started a buyback program, and it, it worked well because uh, we went back to uh, we started the year I think at 180. We didn't start again to buy. And today we're at 225. We went up to 259 on the uh, when we issued the news about the new mill, and we're gonna have a flow of new uh, of news this year. Last year, to me, Pampa, we didn't have many news because we did some basic work uh, in geology, for example, uh, geophysics. It's not very sexy for the market. We did a lot of surface uh, channel sampling, uh, but it's not uh, like drilling. It's not like going underground. And we did uh, infrastructure. Work, like uh, rebuild the, the the road because it was uh, uh, it was necessary. We spent uh, four hundred thousand dollars on the road. Today we have a very good road to go there. It shortened the time from uh, Bankai to the property from five hours to three hours. Mm -hmm. We can go there today with big equipment and we built a campsite, permanent campsite, our internet and all that stuff. So last year it was more basic work, uh -huh. and this year it's really exploration uh, work as we. Uh, we love to do, you know, uh, oh, going on the ground and uh, drilling and uh, all this uh, this yeah. kind of work. 
Yeah, that's the kind of thing that should uh, should be stock friendly, I would think. Now, uh, Jean, just uh, in closing here, before we conclude our discussion, uh, you know, increasingly people are concerned, Americans are concerned about political risk. You've been involved in Peru now for quite a few years. You've developed a very good relationship with the local people, treating them well and complying with all the laws and regulation. Uh, you've got a good reputation with the government and so forth. But how do you see, how do you respond to people that might be concerned about Peruvian political risk? What's your take on it? Well, as you said, we've been there for uh, 18 years, 19 years now. So it's a country where I, uh, I'm very comfortable. Politically, uh, it's it's quite stable. It's democracy. It's it's going well. Governments are like any other countries. We get a very good one, uh, another one which is not so good. for. But you know, it's, uh, it's regular uh, politics. And uh, on that side, I'm not uh, afraid of uh, anything. It's going well. It's a very mining friendly country. They try to attract as much uh, investment in mining as they can. And uh, effectively, after Chile, I think it's the country in South America uh, which received more investment in mining. Mm. Last year, the investment in mining went down not because of political problems in Peru, but because of uh, metal prices. Sure. And uh, mining in the world went down uh, everywhere. But it's still, I think, the fifth uh, country in the world for exploration money spent uh, per year. So it's a very attractive country. And when you compare that with Chile, uh, Chile has been much more developed on the mining side in the last uh, 30 years. Peru is like a, not a virgin country, but almost you have a lot of space for exploration. And uh, politically, it's going very well. You have to take care of uh, local communities as you have to take care of local communities today almost everywhere in the world. Sure. Even in Canada, we have to do that. Sure, sure. So it's a, it's a part where we, uh, we put our attention there. We want to develop good relationship with the local communities as we developed over the years very good relationship with our suppliers and with our employees. So we're taking a lot of care of that part. And up to now, it's going well. We don't have uh, any uh, major problem with local communities going well, and we take care of that. Well, uh, thank you very much, Jean. We are out of time. I want to thank you very much for sharing uh, and updating our listeners on your excellent company. Congratulations on a job well done there. Anything else you'd like to add real quickly? Well, mainly uh, investors have to check uh, the news are going to come out uh, this year. We're going to begin the construction uh, pretty soon in uh, some weeks from now. We're going to keep informing people about uh, on the evolution of that side. And uh, this year, I think you have to take uh, put your attention really much on the Tumipampa exploration program. We expect a lot of news and a lot of good news out of there. Yeah. I think this year... It's going to be uh, on the exploration side. It's going to be a very, very good year for Dynacor. Well, that could pose could start to be very bullish for the stock as well. I would tell our, my <laughs> listeners, DynacorGold.com, Dynacor, D-Y-N-A-C-O-R, Gold.com. Go there to keep up with all that Gene and his uh, team are doing. Uh, thank you very much, Gene, for being with me once again. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Jay. Folks, don't go away. I'll be right back with Daniel Oliver. He's a gold hedge fund manager uh, who will explain why he remains bullish on gold despite its poor performance performance over the past couple of years, so don't go away. We'll be right back with Daniel Oliver. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Kalinex is a junior with major near-term catalysts. 
This tightly held company is advancing its projects containing copper, zinc, gold, and silver in Manitoba, Canada. Calinex's projects are within 10 miles to Hud Bay's mine that has less than five years of ore. Calinex has high-grade deposits and new targets with exciting discovery potential, with drill results anticipated shortly. Now is the time to learn more about Calinex by visiting calinex.ca. That's C-A-L-L-I-N-E-X dot C-A. Calinex is publicly traded under the symbol CNX in Canada and CLLXF in the U.S. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Uh, I'm your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me once again Dan Oliver. Dan is the director of the Committee for Monetary Research and Education, or CMRE for short. The CMRE is a nonprofit educational organization that seeks to promote greater public understanding of the nature of, uh, mo- of the monetary process and of the central role uh, that a healthy monetary system plays in a well-being, indeed, the very survival of a free society. Dan is also the founder and managing director of Mermican uh, Capital. That's a, a private investment company that invests in gold and gold mining shares. Welcome, Dan. Thanks for joining me again. Well, thanks for having me. It's really always good to talk to you. Dan, you recently headed up the CMRE Spring Dinner. Uh, it's a spring dinner meeting that uh, the CMRE has held for many years. Uh, you had some very distinguished speakers at this last event, including the likes of Paul Volcker, John Brown, Thomas Honing, among others. Would you care to tell our listeners a little bit about what these gentlemen had to say? And also, did they give you any hope that uh, we might actually see some improvement in monetary policy sometime in the future? Yeah, it was a great dinner, and it was well attended, and, and, the, and the guests were interesting, and the, and the presentations were great. Uh, you know, one of the things that I started with, I, I gave the introduction for the evening, is I was recently rereading Paul Warburg's monographs. Now, Paul Warburg was uh, a banker back in the early 19th century and really considered the intellectual founder of the Federal Reserve. Uh, he wrote a series of monographs, and, and rereading them, it was quite extraordinary because one of the things that he said – was that uh, it was unsound and dangerous for a bank to lend credit other than terms at which it gets credit. In other words, you, mm. you go down to the bank and you deposit $100 overnight funds. You can get them back anytime you want. And, and then the bank takes it out uh, and lends it to me for 30 years. Right. Well, it's lent it to me on terms different than it got it from you. And he called that unsound and dangerous. And yet this is what all commercial banks do. And, and until recently, you know, the Federal Reserve really didn't do this. The Federal Reserve uh, issued currency, which is a, a current asset, and it bought three-month paper from the federal government and, and from businesses. So, okay, it was three months, not overnight, but the, the, the maturity transformation wasn't that great. And sure. Bernanke, uh, the Fed started buying 30-year bonds, right? So, oh. all of a sudden, the Fed is now doing precisely what the founder of the Fed called uh, uh, unscientific and dangerous. And he went further and said that notes created uh, on the basis of 
uh, government bonds uh, were similarly dangerous, and, and yet this is precisely what the Federal Reserve does. So I, I thought it was fascinating that the, the guy who created the intellectual foundations uh, would, would refer to the current system as dangerous. And, and so I asked uh, 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 Volcker and Honig their opinions of this, and I, I was very surprised by Thomas Honig because here's a guy who was a Federal Reserve governor. Uh, he's currently vice chairman of the FDIC, so you, it's hard to imagine someone more involved in the system uh, than, than, than he is, and his reaction to those comments was, well, that's why I'm trying to res- uh, raise the reserve requirements of the banks, mm. which is a half answer. I, you know, I, I think the answer is he can't get up and say, oh, I think the fractional reserve bank system makes no sense. I mean, what would be the point of that? Yeah. Uh, he, he wouldn't change anything, and all he would do is lose his own stature. But, but by subtly changing the reserve requirements, he's at least heading in the right direction. Right. It won't solve the problem, but it'll make it uh, less bad. What what Volcker, uh, the, the the news item that came out of that was, of course, when he was saying in his interview that uh, gold was the enemy when, when he was uh, a Federal Reserve. Of course, gold is the ultimate current asset. It has no future cash flows the way real estate or stocks have future cash flows. Gold doesn't. And so from that perspective, it's the antithesis of other long-term assets. And, and what he meant was... Uh, you, you know, people have interpreted that to mean that he was out there uh, manipulating the gold price. He may or may not have been, but that's not what he was talking about. What he was talking about was that uh, when he was there, especially gold was the metric of how well the system was doing. In other words, when the gold price was going higher, it meant the market was rejecting the Fed Reserve system. Right. When it was going lower, it meant that the market was accepting it. And the way he saved the system, the way he saved the Federal Reserve was he raised interest rates, as you know, uh, to 21%. And what that did was it devalued uh, all of the uh, assets in the Federal Reserve's books, all those bonds they had. You know, if, you buy, if you buy a bond when rates are 5% and the rates go to 20%, you effectively lose all your money. Yeah. And, and gold uh, shot up to $835 an ounce. Uh, when it passed $500 an ounce, the gold on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet completely backed his liabilities. In, in other words, uh, he didn't admit this, but but the reality is that that Volcker, through his actions, essentially returned the Federal Reserve to a gold standard. Uh, not legally, of course, but the mm-hmm. market did it for him. And, mm-hmm. and I thought that was extremely interesting. What he did say was that when he got going in, in the Federal Reserve in, as, a, as a profession uh, 20 years earlier, so in the, in the 1960s, really, really late 50s, uh, interest rates were very low, and throughout his career, they went higher and higher and higher until you hit 1980, and since then, they've gone lower and lower and lower. Uh, and and he, he himself said that he that, that the environment we're in now is, is a brave new world, and he wasn't sure that the that the tools and 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 the, and the things that he had done uh, were necessarily ap- applicable to to this to this framework. In other words, what what the Federal Reserve has done is take us into uncharted territory. Mm-hmm. Now he wasn't going to criticize. Uh, what's happening now? But but I, I I took that to mean that that um, you know if, if that if he if he's nervous about that that's not a good sign. Right. Well, he's uh, I guess in a sense he's a politician, uh, and he knows uh, even if he's thinking, um, and even if he is critical of, of the Fed, he's not going to say it probably. Well, that's right. That's uh, exactly. So in any event, uh, well, thanks. That's a good summary, Daniel. Thank you for that. Uh, uh, for that, uh, y- you know. Um, Volcker certainly did. I mean, I put the question to Mark Faber and Ron Paul maybe 10 years ago or so at a gathering and uh, at a luncheon and a dinner that we had in, in San Francisco. And I 
I, I asked them, do you think that um, you know uh, that another Volker could be pulled now to try to to try to straighten things out again? And of course, neither of them thought anything like that would be possible. And that was well before uh, the recent uh, debasing of the currency and and um, uh, massive buildup of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. So. Uh, I'd like to talk, get you to talk a little bit about your March 16th missive that you wrote, um, uh, titled "Credit Onslaught." Um, in in that um, uh, you stated uh, in that article, you stated that uh, that most investors really have no clue about money. Uh, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. You, you suggested in the 1930s people had a better perspective of money than they do now. Why, why do you think that was true? Well, I, again, if you, if you look at the at the history of banking and specifically American banking, uh, uh, money was defined to be a certain amount of silver. I think it was three hundred thirty-one grains of silver, and then, and then uh, as the gold standard replaced the bimetallic standard, it turned into a certain weight of gold. And, and you often hear, "Oh, well, there isn't enough gold to go around to support no. the currency." Well, no, it was the opposite. The the currency was defined as a mass of gold and people understood that and what you did was you deposited your gold at a bank and the bank gave you paper money and the paper money is much more convenient to run around than gold coins in your pockets i mean if you have gold coins in your pockets you got a hole in your pocket you know that that is really uh, unhappy uh but but you put the paper uh, notes in your wallet they don't uh, wear out you don't lose them. It's, it's a much. They can be in much smaller denominations. A dollar worth of gold would be so small you could barely see it. Uh, you wouldn't be able to weigh it. No one would accept it. So, so paper money really was a way to more conveniently move gold around. And everyone understood that. And the reason was that until Franklin Roosevelt came along, uh, anyone could go down to the bank with their paper money and get their gold back. So everyone knew exactly. Uh, the relationship between gold and money, and that was that the money stood for a certain amount of gold and they could get it back. And and because of that, uh, people had to consider, well, why is gold money? That was a question that was always in people's minds because uh, because it was the thing you got when you handed in your paper money. Why does anyone want that to begin with? And the answer, of course, is that gold is the most liquid item uh, that there is in the market. It has the, the small spread between bid and ask. It has the most consistent value. Its quantity is the most constant. All, all, all these different things. Uh, it is not used in industry, uh, which is very important. People think that's a liability. They say, well, money should be oil because we use it. And the answer is no. No. Uh, because the business cycle means that when things are hot, uh, things like oil are very valuable. And when things crash, things like oil are very cheap. Well, gold isn't used in industry. You don't build buildings with it. So it's, it's unaffected by the business cycle, which is another reason why its, it's value is so stable, it's so liquid. Mm-hmm. So so people understood that, and they understood that when the banks failed, what that meant was that your claims on gold uh, were, were uh, defaulted upon. You went down to the bank, and you said, I want my gold. The bank said, sorry, drop dead. We're not giving it to you. Uh, and, and so th- that's effectively what happened in the 30s. And and so I think that's why people in the 30s really understood what money was, and, and especially when they couldn't get at it. Uh, and, and what's interesting to me now is that what banks used to do was uh, pyramid loans on top of their gold reserve. Of course, now the Fed Reserve System they do is they pyramid uh, reserves on top of dollars. And so when the banking system starts uh, faltering, what happens is there's a huge shortage of dollars because the banks has lent, have lent out a multiple uh, of dollars as opposed to what actually pe- people have. And so there's a huge short squeeze and, and there's an enormous uh, pressure on people to get dollars in the banks. You want to give it to people. That's why you see all over the world now uh, uh, banks and governments complicit uh, saying, oh, well, if you go down to the bank 
and you try to get out $5,000 in cash, they call the police <laughs> because you must be a social agitator or, or, or a drug person or something else. Right. So, so the connection, it was before you couldn't turn your paper money in for gold. Now you can't turn your deposits in for paper money. And, and, and even Janet Yellen, I think, said, oh, well, uh, you know, the reason why you can have negative interest rates is because having paper money is so inconvenient that people will actually pay to have it stored in the bank, which no. is a wonderful thing to say. But again, if you actually try to go get it, uh, they, they, they call the police on you. So, uh, so, so I, I think that it, 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 it's an interesting development in banking. But of course, I think it also shows just how tremendously fragile uh, the bank system is. Well, the bank system is fragile, and as you're pointing out uh, in your article, the dollar has been, um, the gold has really been in a bear market now since, I guess, probably the second half of 2011, or going nearly four years or so of, of bear markets in gold. And you point out that one of the reasons is the dollar has been strong relative to other currencies, at least. And as you point out, the, the mainstream media is quick to say or try to uh, justify this quote-unquote strong dollar on the basis of a stronger U.S. economy, but you have some other ideas, and I think you might have just touched on it a little bit uh, momentarily there, but wh what are your ideas as to why the dollar has been relatively strong? Yeah, th that's exactly right. So so there's there's about $5 trillion of money in the monetary base. So the, the, those are real dollars that sit, that the Federal Reserve has essentially issued. It's, it's paper. And, and the banks take that $5 trillion and they have created $57 trillion of loans as officially. And then if you look at the shadow bank system, which numbers aren't available, but the people estimate it, about another $20 trillion, and then uh, foreign debt in dollars. In other words, a, a, a French company borrows dollars from a German bank. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's not part of the U.S. dollar system, but there's still dollars out there that have to be paid back. So you add all that together, and you get to a number a little shy of $100 trillion. So you've got $5 trillion of actual currency, and you've got a hundred trillion dollars of debt denominated in this currency, and that debt demands interest payments all day long. And so, where does the money come from to pay that interest? And the answer is the Federal Reserve has to print it. And if they don't print it, you get a huge short squeeze. So ultimately, the dollar, I think, is going. I, I don't know if it's going to zero, but it's going a lot, a lot weaker. And the reason is because the assets in the Federal Reserve don't support it. But in the short term, uh, what's happening is you're getting a, a huge short squeeze. And just like in the late 20s, in, the, in 1928, 1929, when the Fed started to get spooked about uh, asset prices going too high, and they stopped printing so many dollars, and what happened was all the banks blew up because all of a sudden there weren't enough dollars for people to maintain their debts, and, you had, and that's what caused the Great Depression. And what's interesting is you look at the shape of the increase in the monetary base in the 20s, and it looks exactly like it looks like in the 2000s. Bernanke takes over the Federal Reserve. Assets are going crazy, right? Oil went from whatever it was, $20 a barrel to $150. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and real estate, you know, the, the, we all know about the subprime bubble, all those things. And, and the first thing he did was try to rein it in. Uh, we, we all think of Bernanke as the mad money printer. Of course, he is in a sense. But, but in, in, at first, he actually uh, slowed down the printing of money. And shortly thereafter, uh, with, with the banks enormously levered up, and, and of course derivatives make this much worse, uh, the whole system blew up. And mm -hmm. so then they printed huge amounts of money to bail out the system, which they did, and now the bubble's much bigger. Uh, you know, Peter Walsh just had a book that came out to explain that uh, the real estate situation is much worse now than it was in 2007. Uh, the BIS had a report saying there's twice as much debt now than there was in 2007. So all, all, all the conditions are, are much worse. Uh, you see the asset markets in a, in a, in a tremendous bubble, and so of course, the Federal Reserve is worried about that, and they're trying to rein in the money printing, and, and the result will be exactly the same, which is as they stop printing the money, all of a sudden 
the shakiest lenders first will find that they don't have the dollars they need to pay back their debts. And so all of a sudden, uh, they won't be able to, to maintain the, their debts and start to see defaults. And I was interested, I saw today that the uh, the, there's, a, there's an index. There's an index for everything, I think. But there's one that tracks the rejection of credit application. And this thing has just fallen off a cliff. It's actually lower now than it was at the bottom of 2008. In other words, these are businesses that go in their banks and they say, "Hey, you know, I, I want to borrow money." The banks say, "No." Huh. Uh, and and th- th- that's flashing a huge warning sign. You have the, you know, I, I think the. Um, what is it? The Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta has this new tool that's supposed to automate GDP estimates in real time. So you have to wait till a month after the quarter closes. Mm-hmm. And that thing's tracking. Well, it just ticked up from 0% to 0.1%. Meanwhile, the Fed uh, in, in uh, New York and Washington are saying, oh, well, now we're actually growing at, I think, 2.5%. So, I mean, n- n- both Federal Reserves can't be right. Oh. Time will tell which, and it seems like the Atlanta one, which is a little more scientific on, on this metric, not that GDP matters, essentially. GDP uh, measures uh, activity, doesn't measure wealth production. But be that as it may, uh, it, it's not doing so well. Uh, and so I, I think that you're seeing uh, very similar conditions to what we saw uh, in, in 2008 and in 1929. And, and, and I think, Jay, it's very important to remember that um, it may well be that the banks naked short gold. It may well be that the Federal Reserve has a secret trading desk somewhere that 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 you know puts sell orders and makes gold go down. That's all very possible. But it's it's the definition of a credit bubble is an undervalued gold price. Is other prices going up as as against gold to an excessive degree? That that is the definition of what a credit bubble is. Mm-hmm. So so you should expect one should expect that. When one is living through the largest credit bubble that's ever been constructed by man, which we are, that gold will therefore be the lowest value it has ever been. And if you look at gold and all kinds of different monetary metrics like uh, the monetary base, like the assets of the Federal Reserve, uh, those sorts of things, gold is indeed now at an all-time historic low. And that's just what you'd expect. Uh, of course, the flip side is that when the credit bubble pops, uh, one should expect gold to uh, do ha- have the largest transformation of any time uh, in history, and th- that is really what I expect to happen. Have happened um, when this bubble does, in fact, uh, collapse. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, that, well, that makes perfect sense, uh, Dan. It really does because as the bubble is expanding, everything else goes up in value relative to gold. Uh, but when it turns around, then gold goes up relative to everything else. That That's is exactly right. And, and and in the short term, this is why you know a, a lot of gold bugs are amazed that we don't have runaway inflation by now. But I think you're pointing out the dynamics of the credit uh, the credit squeeze, or let's say the dollar short covering in a sense, isn't it? When people have to sell what they uh, what they're able to sell. Uh, in order to meet the margin clerk's demands, if the Fed doesn't keep enough liquidity in the system, doesn't keep enough dollars printed uh, for uh, the system to uh, to continue on. Yes, that that's exactly right. And, and you know, I think the jury's still out on whether in this next crash, whether gold will take a big plunge at first, the mm-hmm. way two thousand seven and eight as people <clears throat> sold it to meet margin calls or not and, and the reason it might not is that I think uh, uh, back then there were a lot of levered longs in the gold markets so they had to sell to meet margin calls now there are a lot of levered shorts in the gold market so they'll have to buy gold to make their margin calls so I, I, I think the, it's not clear to me which, which way gold will lurch when the first crisis comes but, but yes th- th- that is my position but, but one has to remember that that is a, 
uh, going to be a very short-term phenomenon. In other words, w- w- when the big crunch comes, what will happen is either it'll be so big that the banks will just simply collapse uh, very quickly and then gold will go through the stratosphere, or I think more likely uh, Yellen and, and, and her merry band of pranksters will uh, start printing money uh, wholesale. Don't forget, Bernanke printed, what was it, about $4 trillion, uh, $3 trillion over... Uh, a number of years, but he guaranteed about sixteen trillion in the first few months. Now the guarantees weren't triggered, but they were there. And and so when the when the next bubble pops, when this bubble pops, uh, Yellen's going to have to go guarantee. I mean, who knows how many billions, trillions of dollars of assets? You know, twenty five, thirty trillion dollars number, numbers in that magnitude. And if those guarantees ever were to be triggered, there's if people show up and say, okay. Fed, you guaranteed my crappy assets. Here they are. Give me the money. Uh, you know, it, the, the, then I think um, the, the world would look, be a very different place uh, overnight, and gold be uh, have a couple zeros that, uh, added to the um, added to its price. I have no doubt about that, Dan. You know, just going back to the two thousand eight two thousand nine uh, event, there uh, gold did take a hit to start with, but I, I also know that gold, in real terms, as gold measured against a commodity basket, for example. Uh, went up very dramatically uh, from about 2009 on till 2011, uh, and the mining shares did very well also up through that period of time. So, uh, yes, yes, it, that will happen again, of course. But, yeah. uh, but in terms of strictly currency terms, uh, what will affect gold's uh, path in currency terms is uh, who who's holding it and what and what the dynamics are for those people when when the crunch comes and the the, the problem with the, with the uh, real price of gold on, on the miners is not operational, as you point out. Uh, the the gold gold goes up in terms of the cost of mining it when credit goes down. That is also true. But uh, to the extent that companies have uh, debt denominated in dollars, then they're also affected by what happens. To the sure. Currency. And 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 you know the answer is again. I, I, it's not. I'm not convinced that gold takes a big hit this time because again, I, I think many of the holders this time, unlike last time, are, are levered shorts, not levered longs, and so we can yeah. spike up. Yeah, and as you pointed out, gold is at an all-time low um, in terms of the monetary system right now. So Yes, and that was not the case. In and that was not the case then. So uh, who knows? Well, with a minute left yet, uh, what is your outlook for the gold shares? I know that you're invested. Uh, your fund invests in gold shares. Uh, have, are we close to a bottom here? Well, I, again, I, mean, I, I think I approached that space in, in, in terms of what we just discussed. I, I certainly have some holdings that have a lot of dollar debt on mm-hmm. the theory that uh, it, w- when the dollar collapses, that debt goes away and those companies get revalued uh, a lot because their value is so low right now because the market assumes they can't repay their debt. Right. As long as they have enough liquidity. Like if the debt's due in, say, four years, I don't really care about it because this will happen certainly within the next four years. So uh, yeah. the market thinks they're going bankrupt and they won't go bankrupt. That's a huge transformation. You can have more safer positions where where you buy companies with not without a lot of debt, and then you don't really care what gold does in terms of dollars. Then you only really care about is what gold does in terms of oil, and we all know what's happening with that. So, so I, I think that's how you, one should approach the mining sector in terms of, of your risk and, and and allocating different amounts of capital to different possible outcomes. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dan. Let me just ask you: if, Is there a way that our listeners can uh, can keep up with what you're doing at the CMRE and, and possibly attend that event from oh, time sure. to time? Yeah, we we have a website, cmre.org, and we'll have videos of of the, the recent dinner out there in a, in a couple of weeks. And uh, we have a million list people can sign up for. They can join the organization. So it's it's all we're all right there on our website. Excellent. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Dan, for being with me again, and uh, look forward to doing it again sometime in the not too distant future. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much.
Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this week's show, folks. Next week, my guest uh, will be Richard Mayberry, who will give us his latest views on geopolitics and the uh, global economy. And exploration geologist Brent Cook will also join me to talk about some of his favorite gold share picks at that time. In closing, I want to thank our sponsors for making this show economically viable. Thanks to Tacey Trump, my producer, Matt Widener, my engineer. Thanks to all of you for listening. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Where infrastructure meets grade. Carlisle Goldfields, a TSX-listed Canadian junior miner, has an advanced gold asset in Lynn Lake, Manitoba, Canada, and is being carried through feasibility in a joint venture with NYSE-listed Orico Gold. The Lynn Lake Gold Camp has an open pitable gold resource of 1.7 million ounces measured and indicated and 2.3 million ounces inferred. Orico is in it to build it, and the project is expected to be in mineable reserves by Q3 2016. Government and First Nations support Carlisle's move to production at Lynn Lake. 